Amen. You know, that's a hard word to say. I looked up the official way to say it, FYI, you know, for your information. It is Zerub Babel, but, you know, I want to say Zerubbabel, right? It just seems normal. So you can say whatever you want to say. The official way is Zerub Babel, um, which is kind of hard to say. But anyway, you, uh, you learned a new way to say that. It's just not a word you say very often, but maybe you could name your next ch- child that. Maybe not. It would be difficult. So, uh, yeah, so we're in our uh, third section of Ezra, and uh, we've got a few weeks left. You know, Christmas is right around the corner, so we we have two Wednesdays, I think, in uh, December, and uh, which will be here, and then, uh, which is next Wednesday, 7th, 14th, 21st, and the 28th, we do not have service. Uh, so just be aware of that calendar um, coming up in December. So we've got a couple of Wednesdays left, and uh, we will wrap up the book of Ezra, and uh, so, and then we'll move into the new year. So the, right out of the gate here as we begin, so Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, is back in their homeland. It's a place of trust, safety, and security. And so what's happened is, as we've gone through this, is of course, you know, the nation of Israel, the northern uh, tribe. Uh, was, you know, ceased to exist, and then uh, the southern tribe then uh, subsequently ceased to exist, and so uh, they were taken into captivity, into Babylonian captivity, and we talked about how that was in the mid-500s B.C. as they were brought into captivity, and Jeremiah prophesied during that, and we talked about Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, how, you know, he told uh, the Israelites, hey, get comfortable. Uh, I know the plans that God has for you, declares the Lord, uh, plans to prosper, to have a future, but that future was what we're talking about, was where God would bring them back into uh, their homeland, so to speak. And so when they came back into their homeland, this was a place that God had given to them. It was a place that they trusted. It was a place that God provided. It was a place that they felt safe. And so Israel's back here, and they are beginning to rebuild this call. Now Ezra, as the book, of course, is called, is not yet part of the picture. Ezra was one of the subsequent uh, waves of returning exiles, if you will, into uh, back to the nation of Israel, and so he's not yet entered the picture yet. Uh, and so uh, Zerubbabel, he, he's called these people, he's led these people back in, and as Brian, uh, Pastor Brian spoke about last week, uh, he talked about worship, and he talked about how worship became the central focus again, in the lives of the people who came. And Pastor Brian uh, talked about worship and how uh, they had ushered that back into uh, their normal way of life. And so they've reestablished their foundation of hope and faith in Yahweh God. And they're now declaring their renewed covenant relationship with God. And so here they've come back in, and as uh, chapter 3, as was covered last week, uh, they began to praise, the Bible says that they sang uh, about the goodness of the Lord, and we'll review that here in a second. And so they began to sing about the goodness of God and how God had brought them back uh, to where they were. And you, got, you have to imagine uh, the exuberation, if you will, of where they're at, that God has brought them from uh, captivity out of captivity into freedom, back to where they belong, back to where God desires for them to be. And of course, they're excited and, and they're living, you know, we just came out of this uh, week of Thanksgiving. And so they're living in this area of gratitude that God has brought them back to where they are. However, it was not until the temple was built could they really live in accord with the covenant in which God had established for and with them? 
It was not until the temple was built. And so there had to be a place of worship. So there's praise that's taking place. Again, you know, primarily, especially the latter part of chapter 3 discusses this. And, And the focus is on praising God, but the covenant They couldn't be in accord with who God wanted them to be until the temple was built according to the covenant. You see, after returning in 538 B.C., they began the work on the temple, and it wasn't finished until 515 B.C. So we're going to talk about that interim period tonight. You see, as Pastor Brian talked about, they were beginning to build or to lay the foundation of the temple of God in chapter 3. But I want you to see what happens. You see, as soon as they focused on praising God and following God's agenda, they were attacked from the outside. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about tonight is the enemy without. You see, they began to praise God. That's one of the things that uh, we often, you probably, if you are a uh, newer believer in recent years that you've heard us talk about that we would say to you, especially in one-on-one counseling, is buckle up, right? Because if, if you have committed your life to follow Jesus or you've recommitted uh, your life to be who God wants you to be and you, you focused on what God has in store for you, guess what's going to happen? Opposition, right? Things are going to happen in your life that the enemy is going to pay attention because as long as you are having no impact on the kingdom of God, guess who doesn't care? The enemy. And so what's happening is Israel is back to business, right? That God is calling his people back, and they are beginning to praise God, and the enemy sees that they are gathering the forces, that the temple is being reestablished, and that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are about to spring forth. And so what he wants to do is he wants to do anything that he can do to stop that. And so as the praise began, so does the opposition. And so the first thing that we'll discuss tonight is the enemy without. (coughs) So we pick up in Ezra chapter 4. I think this is on your handout. (coughs) Verse 1 says, When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they were so excited that they brought housewarming gifts and they loaned their shovels and their picks and their stone masonry uh, projects to help them out, right? No, that's not what they did. It says uh, in verse 2 that they approached Zerubbabel. See how I did that there? The heads of the fathers and the heads of the fathers' houses, and they said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Hadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So what happened is the Israelites were moved, okay? And when they were taken into captivity, they brought different people from different places and they placed them all throughout uh, the domain uh, of, the Babylon, of the Babylons. And so what they were trying, through Assyria, and so what they were trying to do is they were trying to assimilate everybody together. And so they wanted to take a little bit of you and a little bit of me and a little bit of them and put them all together. And so they, they created synchro- synchronism, basically, what they were trying to do is to create all these variations. And it's what the world has continually tried to do, uh, you know, all throughout culture is to diminish uh, the authority uh, or um, the ability of one particular belief system by introducing all of these different belief systems. It's, it's what you see. I mean, it's always been throughout history. And so that's what happened here. So these people have been 
there for a while. And so they come up to uh, the Israelites and say, hey, man, we've been here for a while. We're so glad you're back. We want to help you. Now remember, how did the Israelites get here? God told the king, send them back, right? And so God commissioned them to do what they are called to do. Now it would seem on the outset, the more the merrier, right? We get help. So the quicker, the more people help, the quicker that we are going to be able to rebuild the temple. You know, uh, we say many hands make light work, right? Well, well, there was two reasons for not wanting. You, you would say, well, why would they not allow them to help? Well, there was a couple of reasons why the Israelites said, no, thank you. Well, the first reason was that the temple was for God, Yahweh God, the King of Israel, the Lord of Israel. And he was not the God, little g, that these people worship. And so Israel was very specific about the nation of Israel, was very specific about what God called them to do because it was for him. Second, they had been commissioned. Remember how they got here again, King Cyrus commissioned uh, them that they would come down and he wanted to, uh, them to undertake this building project. And so they had every right, according to, to the decree of Cyrus, to do what God had called them to do. And so they said, you know what? No, we don't need your help. Well, that didn't go over very well. You see, the truth is, sometimes God calls us, most of the time, God calls us to do things. And here's what the unfortunate truth is, is that sometimes people may find it easier to pawn off on others what God has called them to do themselves. You see, God called the Israelites to do this. And it would have been easier for them to show up in town, guys, we've been gone for 70 years, and play the victim, right? Woe is me, poor us. Um, it would really be nice if you guys would build this temple for us. But that's not what God called them to do. You see, when God calls you to do something, you need to do it. Even if someone offers to help you, you need to do what God called you to do. And so the Israelites were very staunch in saying, God called us to do this, and so we are going to do it. Now, the unfortunate reality is because they said no, well, that didn't go over very well. And so there became this uh, contention, this uh, conflict, this animosity between uh, the Israelites and the people who inhabited now the area. And the unfortunate reality is there are people who appear to be with us but are actually against us. It's hard to believe, but unfortunately, it's true. You see, the text shows us four different ways that the enemy can work against us through other people. And so let's go back and look at the text. You see, in verses 1 through 3, the first thing that we see is that the enemy uses compromise to try to use uh, to work against us. He says, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they had returned, they approached them and the heads of the fathers and said, let us build with you because we worship as you do. And so they said, hey, we're, we're the same as you. Even though God didn't call us, and either, even though we're not a part of the covenant that God is establishing with y'all, we still want to be a part of that. And so they were, the enemy was trying to get them to compromise in what God had called them to do. You see, that's always going to be the number one tactic of the enemy in your life is compromise. 
Well, no one will know. Well, it's not going to make that big of a difference. Well, it's not going to have that big of an effect. Well, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. To compromise. And so it's the first thing that we see that was used here. The second thing that we see is in verse 4. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So the second thing that we see that the enemy uses against us is discouragement. To try to discourage you from doing what, again, God has called you to do. Now, I'll tell you this. Spend about 10 seconds breathing, and somebody's going to try to discourage you. Especially when you're trying to live your life for God. Somebody's going to try to discourage you. You see, uh, and I've shared this story before, when Melly and I, uh, <coughs> when we felt that God had called us to move to seminary many years ago, <coughs> no one said, fantastic. Man, we're so excited about what God's doing in your life, and we want to pray for you and help you and encourage you. Now, there were some people that saw the big picture, and that encouraged us and prayed for us, but I mean people close to us. No one that was, you know, family in proximity said, oh, well, that's a great idea. As a matter of fact, there were some uh, extended family members that said, well, you shouldn't do that. There's no way that God wants you to do that. And so they began to try to get us to question what God had called us to do. And so it was a, it was a version of the enemy to use discouragement against us. So not only does the enemy use compromise through other people, he uses discouragement. Number three, in verse four again, it says that uh, he, used, he discouraged the people and he made them afraid to build. Fear. The enemy will cause fear in your life to prevent you from doing what God has called you to do. You know, uh, there's a song that says, fear is a liar. And, and fear in our lives takes so much precedent and control oftentimes that it'll try, that there will be, I believe that there's sometimes some disillusionment, if you will, follow me if you will, uh, that there's disillusionment that the enemy uses to cause us to see things and make them appear bigger than they really are. It's kind of like when you look in that mirror and it said, uh, objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear, right? And I think that's what the enemy often does when he tries to use fear in our lives, is that he will, try to, he will attempt to cause situations or people to say, oh, well, this is more fearful than it actually is. Don't forget, don't forget one of my favorite verses, don't forget 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, Right? That, that's, what, that's what we stand upon as believers is that through the power of Jesus that we can't be overcome. So not only compromise, discouragement, fear. Last but not least, look in verse 5. It says they bribed the counselors against them to frustrate them. So they used frustration. Ever been frustrated? Can I get a hallelujah on that one, right? So we, we always run into these situations to where we're frustrated. Now again, listen to me. I, want you, I don't want you to miss this. These people showed up and said, man, we're just like you. We want to help you. We're on your side. So don't miss that, that someone may come up, someone may be walking with you or appear to be walking with you and say, we are on your side. But in reality, they're not on your side. They're using discouragement and compromise and fear or frustration to try to accomplish their mission instead of God's mission. And so we see that they tried to bribe them to frustrate their purpose. You see, if their intentions were true, 
Okay, listen, if their intentions were true and they genuinely desire to worship Yahweh God, then they would have wanted to obey the law that was set forth by Moses. And we don't have time to unpack all this, but there was a qualification, right? It's just like for you and me. We can say that I want the benefits of God, but we don't possess the benefits of God unless we possess the Spirit of God. Okay, and we'll get to that in a second. But we can't have, the, we can't have the, uh, the benefits of God if we're not willing to possess the Spirit of God inside of us. That we've got to say, none of me and all of you, Jesus. And that's how the blessings of God come into our life. And so here the Israelites had to come to a point to where they said, look, if you want to be a part of what God is doing, you can't just bebop up in here and act like you're a part of the group and receive all the blessings and benefit of that. Now, I will tell you, unfortunately, and I may be the only person to say this, but in our current uh, church culture, we're a little bit like that, right? That you, you know, anybody can show up and anybody can say, I want to lead or be a part of and do or whatever. And, I, and listen, I know the Bible says, whosoever will may come. God is willing that none should perish. I totally agree with that. But listen, there is a standard of holiness that is required for people that are uh, committed to or declare that they are part of God's church. It's not your church, it's not my church, and it's not my standard, it's not your standard. It's His standard. So you can't just show up at church and say, I'm a part of the church of God and I want to receive all the benefits from God, and yet that you don't say, "I I want God to do in me, not me to do in me. There's qualifications. There's qualifications, and it was the same for these people. They weren't willing to meet the qualifications to be a part of what God was doing. You see, clearly this shows that their motive was wrong. You see, their offer was about wanting influence and control. They wanted control. A lot of people want control, right? A lot of people want control without responsibility, That's what people want. They wanted influence over the situation. And here's the deal. I have to be very careful not to say uh, things about Baptists here. Uh, But here's the deal. Listen, I know I'm one, so. uh, But here's the deal. Listen, with influence and control, so oftentimes in the church, here's what happens. We think if we volunteer to that ministry or we gave to that ministry or we had something to do with that ministry, that we have influence and control over that ministry. You do not. Either you gave to that ministry because God called you to give to that ministry, and you were saying, you know what, God, this is my money you gave me, and now it is yours, and I have nothing to do with it. Or you gave with an impure motive, and you can keep your money in your pocket. Right? Because what they're saying here is if we can have influence over what's being built and how it's being done, then we can have control over what's being done. And here's the deal. God doesn't need your help or influence or control. He doesn't need my help or influence or control. He's doing a great job all his own. He chose to allow us to be a part of what he is doing. And he would have chosen to allow them to be a part of what he was doing there had they done it his way. But they wanted to do it their way. You see, for these people, the temple is about them. It's not about God. So here's some questions that I want to challenge us with tonight. Here's the question. When you don't get what you want, do you still support? Or do you try to frustrate and to discourage? 
If you envy and you frustrate and discourage, then this is a clear sign that you're more interested in advancing your kingdom than advancing God's kingdom. You see, could, could God be forcing you to see that your character matters more than opportunities for influence and control? Right? How do you expect that the world will respond to your faithfulness? How do you think they're going to respond to that? You see, we, we see this situation, and, and unfortunately, it's, it's very common in our world today that people are bent on influence and control, and they'll do anything to get it, right? That they'll do anything to get it. And so, for, you know, that we say, well, God, I want to be faithful to you. And so, for those of us that are saying, God, I'm trying to be faithful to you, what does that look like? Well, the unfortunate reality is that often people will play nice and offer to collaborate Not because they love God, but because they want influence and control. They want influence and control. And if you're faithful to God instead of faithful to them, they will publicly turn against you. You only see this, maybe maybe only is not, not fair to say, you often see this. In the church. You often see this in the church. I want you to think about this. I want to challenge you with something. Church people think that they can act any way they want to other church people. You ever seen that? You don't treat people that way in Walmart, do you? You don't treat your coworkers that way, do you? The truth is, you can't say anything you want. The truth is, you can't do anything you want. The reality is that every one of us, Pastor Chandler talked about it Sunday, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as a believer, that's for the things you said and didn't say and the things you did and didn't do. That's what that means. So the reality is, I can't say whatever I want to say. There's a lot of things I want to say, believe me. But I know there'll be a day that I stand before God and I'll give an account for every idle word the Bible says that I speak. And so I have to be careful about that. You have to be careful about that. You see, it's treachery against God. And here's the crux of the matter. As I began to process this and think about this, here's the crux of the matter. Why is this so important? Here's why it's so important. You say, he's building a temple. We don't live in temple days Pastor Matt. Well, do we? Remember, it was not until the temple was built, remember what I said earlier, it was not until the temple was built could they live in accord with the covenant. Follow me here. What does that mean for us right now? Well, here's what it means. It means that you and I cannot live in accord with the covenant until the temple's built. What does that mean? Well, let me share 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are the temple. 1 Corinthians 6 
19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, you and I, we're the new covenant. We're the new covenant temple. And God's desire, God's plan is that we would be a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's why it matters. That's why it matters. You see, we have to be filled with the Spirit. Why do we have to be filled with the Spirit? Because, spoiler alert, opposition's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. So what Ezra's done here very craftily and carefully is that Ezra has placed a lot of time in a few words. In verses 6 through 23, what Ezra has done is he tells us of future oppositions with future kings and future letters that are sent to stop the work of God. There's even a letter that was written that halted the rebuilding of the of the wall, which is uh, with Nehemiah. So we're, we're on down the road that Nehemiah, or that Ezra, is describing these events, okay? And so verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to jump over to verse 24, I believe it is. So 6 through 23 tell of a long span of time, I think it's almost 100 years, of all of the opposition that they have. And so if you are not careful and you do not, uh, you do not abide by the new covenant that you are God's temple, which is where the Spirit of God resides, you will have no resolve against the opposition. You're going to have opposition It's going to happen. So you got to buckle up. But the only way you're going to make it is if the Spirit of God resides inside of you. And so how did Israel respond? Well, in verse 24, it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. It ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So how did Israel respond? They stopped. They stopped, which is what 99% of believers do today with opposition. They stop. You know, I used to say, I had to quit saying it because it could be offensive, but, you know, that Baptists were a mile wide and an inch deep, and we couldn't fight our way out of a wet paper sack theologically, right? That we want to be, be included, but we don't want to be responsible, Right, And so what, what Israel did here is they came back in and they said, look what God has done. You know, it's just like Peter with the angel that broke him out of jail in Acts 11. Uh, I believe it's Acts 11 or 12. And so, you know, Peter, he thinks it's a dream and then the angel gets him out of prison. Then he takes the chains off and then he takes him to the gate. And then he goes to the uh, house where they were praying for him and knocks on the door and they think he's an angel. Right, it's the same thing here that all, you know, Israel come back and God had done all these things. He had, he had gotten a pagan king to release them and bring them back to their promised land and supplied all the resources for them to rebuild the temple. And they get a little bit of opposition and they're like, we're out. I'm not doing that anymore. It's too hard, God. Just send us back to captivity. We're all that way. Listen, let, be honest with yourself. You see, this narrative picks up in, in verse 24 uh, and it was some 18 years later after the people had returned to the land to rebuild the house of God that they actually finished. So what does, 
what does God do in, in this situation? You see, it seems as though the adversaries, those looking for control and influence, remember, it seems as though they were successful. But God clearly had other plans. And so here's what happened. God broke them out of captivity, created a scenario to get them to where he wanted them to be, brought them back to their homeland, told them, instructed to uh, reestablish the covenant by reestablishing the temple. They start working on that, and then they get opposition, and they're out. They quit. And so what does God do? Well, if you or me were God, he would say, okay, I'm done with you guys. I'm starting over, right? I'm done. That's it. I'm out. But thankfully, he doesn't do that to us, and he didn't do that to the nation of Israel for the 17th billionth time. And so what did he do? He sent a prophet, and he sent Haggai, all right? You've heard of Haggai before? And so he sent Haggai to him, and this is what he wrote. Uh, This is what Haggai wrote. He says, uh, it was not until uh, 520 that Haggai prophesied, 520 to 518. And this is what he said, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, very specific here, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet uh, to Zerubbabel and the son of Shealtiel, uh, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And this is what he said, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so that was, okay, leaders, here's what you said. And then he opens verse 3, and he says, now I'm going to talk to everybody else. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet, uh, by the hand of the prophet Haggai. Uh, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He's talking about inflation there. Sound familiar? Thus the Lord of hosts says in in verse 7, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In the first two verses, God is directly speaking to the leaders. And then in verses 3 and following, he talks to his people. You see, what Haggai did is he rebuked the people who returned for being selfish, indifferent, and neglecting the things of God. So what they began to do is they said, well, God sent us here, and we had all this opposition, and, and people are against us when we're doing God's work, but they're for us when we're doing culture work or community work or society work. And so, God, we've got to build our own houses here, and we've got to reestablish ourselves in this area, God. And so we've got to build paneled houses, according to what Haggai said, and we've got, to, we've got to earn as much money as we can, and we've got to get as much food as we can. And what God is telling them is everything that you're doing for yourself is not satisfying you. You see, they had built their own houses while neglecting to rebuild the house of God. So there was an enemy on the outside, but there was also an enemy on the inside. There was also an enemy within. On four separate occasions, four separate occasions, verse 7, uh, 15, and twice in verse 18, Haggai says, consider your ways. Give careful thought to what you're doing and what you're saying. 
You see, he's being very intentional to say it this way. He says, consider the way that you are acting. This is a very stern warning from God himself. Consider your ways. You see, the truth is that we are our own worst enemy. Pastor Chandler referenced it Sunday. It's been referenced many times before. That left to ourselves, we're going to do a really good job of messing things up. And we're going to fight ourselves all the way to where God wants us to be. Because the flesh is not very willing, at least not to do the things of God. And so we see here that Haggai says, consider your ways. That God is saying through the prophet, you better be careful what you do. You see, it's very easy to justify our own actions. The Israelites had justified their actions. They'd been exiled in captivity. Now they were back in their homeland, and they were trying to reestablish themselves, to which we would say, great job. Of course, you need to provide for your family. You need to build a house. You need to do this. You need to do that. But instead of depending upon God to provide the things which they needed, they focused on providing for themselves. Every one of us pre-Jesus has done that. That we said, and maybe some of you post-Jesus, that we would say, I can do this. I don't need God. Oh, it's because I work hard. It's because I provided this. It's because I did this. It's because I'm smart enough. Or whatever the reason may be. But God's saying the reason that you're not successful is because you have excluded me. So instead of depending on God to provide, they says, well, I'll just do it myself. Here's the problem, though. How do you you think that went? You know, it's as though God is saying, "Um, I don't think that's going very well for you guys. And he gave them specific examples. He says, you want clothes, but you're not warm. You ask for food, but you're not filled. He says, you make extra money, but the bags you put them in, it's as though they have holes. And so what's happening is he's saying that you're not accumulating anything because what you build doesn't last. He says, you work hard, but you don't get ahead. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And so the implication is very strong here that the economic conditions that they were experiencing were divine chastening for disobedience. See, the people were focused on themselves. And they, were, they were focused on the minutia of life. There's a story of a time management expert who was speaking to a group of business students. You may have heard this story before. Uh, he pulled out a large, wide-mouthed jar and filled it with fist-sized rocks. When he couldn't put any more in it, he held the jar up and he says, is this jar full? The class responded, yes. And he said, really? And then he pulled a, a, a bucket of gravel out and he began to pour gravel into the jar, shaking it down through the cracks until it came to the top. And he held the jar up and he said, is this jar full? The students were now into what he was getting at, and they said, no. And he said, very good. And he dumped in a bucket of sand, and he shook the jar as more sand creeped into the empty crevices. And he said, is this jar full? And again, they shouted, no. And again, he said, very good. And so he poured a pitcher of water into the jar until it was full to the brim. Then he asked the question, which we'll ask ourselves tonight, what is the point of this illustration? And a student raised his hand and said, no matter how full your schedule, if you try hard, you can always fit more in. To which the professor said, no, that's not the point. 
The point is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get it all in. And what happens for you and me is oftentimes we start with the sand or we start with the gravel and we put the small things in and we pay attention to the small things and we give allegiance to the small things. And then at the end, we say, wait a minute, there's no room for God in here. There's no room for the big rocks of life that really matter. And we've got a jar full of a bunch of stuff, but we can't put the things that really matter in that jar anymore. And that's what the nation of Israel had done, is they had taken their jar and they'd put a lot of sand in it. They put a lot of gravel in it. And God said, wait a minute, what about me? How are you going to fit me in that jar when you've excluded me on everything else? God was telling them that they were so focused on the small things that they were actually missing the big things. And so what God was calling them to do, what God is calling us to do, is that we would focus on the big rocks again. That we would focus on the big rocks. He says in verse 14 of Haggai, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, uh, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Remember, we started with Ezra 1 when he stirred Cyrus's heart. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And God stirred the heart of Zerubbabel just as he had stirred the heart of Cyrus to initiate the return. And so what they did is they began... They had lost their focus, and so they had to focus on the big rocks. And so they began to do what? They began to focus on what mattered the most. Remember what Pastor Brian read last week? Let me remind us again. In Ezra 3, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. See, the word love here is God's covenantal love, his loyal love, which exists forever for his people. But look, it wasn't until, it wasn't until they established the foundation of God as a priority in their life were they able to move forward with God's blessing. There is an order in the kingdom of God. And you can't do it how you want to do it or when you want to do it or what shape or version or time frame. It is only on God's time in God's way. It was not until the temple was built could the, real, could the people again live in accord with the covenant of God. So we ask ourselves the question, what will it take for you and I to set our focus back on the things of God? What will it take? What will it take for us to focus on what God has in store for us? You see, as we look at uh, the Israelites, what happened is we began to see what they were doing. You see, they were following, and I think I got out of order here, but they were following their own agenda. You see, what is it going to take for them to get off of their agenda and onto God's agenda? 
God was calling them to refocus. He had centered it in Ezra chapter 3 on praise and worship. And he's saying, worship ushers in the presence of God. But they wanted to follow their own agenda. They were being very self-centered, getting their own food and getting their own clothing and filling their own bags. And God's saying, you're still not satisfied with all that you've done? And it's because they were being self-centered and prioritizing themselves over the kingdom. And so the question is, well, what will it take? What will it take for you to refocus on the things of God? Well, hopefully you'll be encouraged to know that there is an advocate who prevails. You see, you and I have an enemy without. And unfortunately, that truth is, is very real. And we also, if we cater to the flesh, we've got an enemy within But there is an advocate. His name is the Lord Jesus. And he will prevail. I want you to see see what he said here. You see, God will accomplish his mission. And God will accomplish his mission with or without us. And so if you're causing dissension or if you're causing division in God's church, consider your ways. You're playing with fire. You will not succeed. The truth is, we are all a part of a bigger picture, a story much bigger than you or I. It's much bigger, and it's a story that God has allowed us to be a part of. There's a reason that you weren't born in the 1800s, the 1400s, the 800s. There's a reason you're born right now. God puts you where you are in this situation for a reason, with the people that you're around for a reason. So just like Jeremiah 29 says, get comfortable and know your neighbors, get comfortable, know your neighbors, because God put you here, and he's going to accomplish his mission, and you can be a part of that. You can be a part of the greatest story ever told, and you can stand before King Jesus one day, and he can say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You can be a part of what God is doing. You see, God was present the entire time. You see, you read the story of Joseph. I think it's chapter 20 of Genesis through chapter 50. And uh, you see the story of Joseph and you think, was God, where, where does it say God was in there? Well, it doesn't have to say it for you to see it. You see, you don't have to hear it for you to know it. You see, for us, if we're following what God has in store for us, here's what's happening. I can assure you of this. The Bible tells that the, uh, the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you read the very end, and what does it say? It says that after all the lights are turned out and all the wars are had and all the enemies are defeated, that who's still standing? God is still standing. That he comes in triumphantly on a white horse of victory. That the Bible says that he's going to defy gravity and science and time. And he's going to split the sky one day. And he's going to get one of his angels to blow a trumpet. And he's going to call all of those who serve him home to be in perfection with him for all eternity. Which, by the way, is absolutely forever unlimited, can't measure time. That God's going to call us to be a part of that. And so do not be tricked or deceived into believing through fear or compromise or discouragement or frustration that God is not present. Because trust me, he's there. And trust me, he sees. And trust me, he's active. You see, while the enemy spoke, it seemed as though they had the victory. 
It reminds me of three dark days after a dark Friday a few thousand years ago. That the enemy thought he had won. That the Lord Jesus was taken down off the cross and he was placed in a borrowed tomb. Right? You know that story? Right? And then guess what happened? On the third day, they show up and there is no Jesus. Because why? Because God is always present and he always prevails. Always prevails. You see, while it seemed as though evil had won, even when nothing was happening for 18 years, God was working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. Now, I don't know how old Haggai was, but I want you to think with me for just a minute. The nation of Israel returned from captivity to to their homeland to be where God wanted them to be. And they began to stray from what God called them to do. So what did God do? He raised a prophet to send a message. Now, I don't know how old Haggai was, but I know it took a, you know, roughly 20 years from opposition causing them to stop than for Haggai to show up and say, guys, um, God wants to tell you something. So I'm just imagining in my mind that there's this group of young uh, boys that, you know, God, of course, has created, and they're being raised up, and they're maybe, uh, you know, 8, 9, 10, 15, 16 years old, and God says, I've got a message that I want to send to the Israelites, and I'm going to call young Haggai. And for 18 years, I'm going to raise him in the admonition of the Lord. And for 18 years, I'm going to prepare him to be bold. And for 18 years, I'm going to prepare him to be my mouthpiece. And in 18 years, because God knows the uh, future as well as he knows the past, that he says in 18 years, when the time is right, I'm going to send Haggai to stand before the nation of Israel and say, "Um, guys, uh, I have a message from the Lord. And they're going to respond, just like Jonah knew that if he went to Nineveh, they would respond. And so God was raising up young Haggai that when the time was right, only God would know that he would send him into the midst of them and say, you guys need to listen up. You see, God was raising up someone who would declare his goodness, who would instruct the hearts and the minds of those who had ears to hear and to defeat those acting in opposition to the kingdom. You see, in Haggai 1.13, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and he says, I am with you, declares the Lord. You see, if you're in the midst of opposition tonight, that's what God is telling you. I am with you. If you are in opposition, then I would say to you, consider your ways, because you're fighting a losing battle. You see, Haggai 2.5 says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. And just as the enemy used fear in the beginning verses of Ezra chapter 4, what does he say at the end of Haggai chapter uh, 2 verse 5? He says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Fear not. So our principle, as we start to wrap up tonight, It's that God blesses his people that are on his agenda with his presence. You see, we're about to celebrate Christmas. 
the time that we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're about to celebrate what it meant for God to be incarnated, to take on flesh, to step into time and space and history and humanity and reveal himself face to face. That's what we're celebrating. And the principle is that God blesses his people. But it's not just that God says, hey, if you just come and sit in the pew, then you're going to get elbow blessings, right? You're just proximity. It's just like a hand grenade. If you're near, you're going to get hurt, or you're going to, right? And so what he's saying is, look, this is not you just showing up and thinking that just because you're a part of the, of the participants that you're going to get the blessing of God. This is God saying, I want to bless you with my presence, and my presence is the Spirit of God inside of you, the temple, the new covenant for believers today. And so if you desire more of God, God says you can have as much of me as you want. He says that I'm going to bless my people who are doing what? That are on my agenda with my presence. The reality is God has called us to be a part of his mission, to declare his goodness, to surrender our agenda, to be a part of his agenda. We get to do that. What an amazing thing to be able to say that we get to be a part of the greatest story ever written. You see, when we are blessed with God's presence while we're on his agenda, the reality is that there will be no opposition that will come against us when we're on his agenda that will prevail. So whatever it is that may come against you, remember that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Paul writes in Romans 8 that there is no weapon formed against you that will prosper. None. And the reality of that is because of the Spirit of God that lives inside of us. And so I pray that God uh, uses this tonight to instruct your heart. I pray that God uses this to encourage you to be on His mission, to be a part of the work that He has in store for us, and be grateful that we get to be a part of what He is doing. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word tonight. God, thank you that you're...